All right. All right. Well, um, I am Cal Rivet. Um, I'm today interviewing my friend Nate on his sort of uh, theological evolution, uh, his uh, spiritual journey uh, in general. And in, in particular, we're going to be discussing the topic of universal salvation. And um, it's a little bit like the talk that I did with Luke uh, one or two weeks ago. And uh, in the same way, there's, there's no time limit to this interview. I kind of want to get into the, the personal as well as like the, the, the systematic uh, the theological relationships. And uh, with that said, um, uh, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Tell us as much or as little about yourself as, as you want. Tell us whatever you think is pertinent to kind of set the stage. Sure. Okay. So um, I've, I've been thinking about this because like um, since since she proposed that we, we we discuss it like and I'm trying I was trying to I'm trying to think of like so I would say that um, my universalism is is natural to me like uh, there's <clears throat> I, I don't so it's hard for me to defo- define any point where I became a universalist but I can tell you the reason why. I'm a natural universe that universalist that, that I can I can point to that and I actually it was necessary for me to be a universalist in order to be a Christian like there was no there was no way that I could ever be a Christian without being a universalist and the reason for that is very personal it's my grandfather so um my I was raised like in my early childhood um, my parents were like evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal types. Uh, and I kind of, I mean, I was a kid, so I just like, you know, parroted what my, what my parents told me. And I would like, you know, I would go over to my grandparents' house and like preach at my grandparents, you know, and I would say things like, yeah, you know, you know, grandpa, I love you, but if you don't believe such and such, you'll, you're, you're going to go to hell and I don't want you to go to hell. So why don't you just believe such and such? I mean, so that's like, so um, as a child, so uh, not a universalist as a child, <laughs> because I not, I, I not sophisticated enough to like understand the meaning of what not having universalism means. So, uh, and the full weight of that. Um, uh, but then I got older <laughs> and my grandfather was like, he, I mean, he, what, he was my grandfather, but he was also my best friend. Like, so like we did, I mean, he's the, he is the person who took me to all of my practices for sports, you know, and I did like wrestling, boxing, baseball, uh, um, uh, flag football because I, I was they didn't have they didn't have tackle football in my part of the country at the, at that age uh um uh you know so, so he, he's the one who took me to all my all my practices um we would watch games together all the time baseball basketball football college pro like so we like and, and he would take me to games you know we he would take me and he would take me to the, okay, this is going to date me. He would take me to the kingdom to see Mariners games, <laughs> uh, which was the, which was the old, that was the old stadium that the, 
both the Seahawks and the Mariners used to play in. There was a, it was a really ugly concrete dome stadium. It was kind of an eyesore, but that was like the stadium at the time. And then he would take me to like local baseball tournaments that there, um, we lived in, um, Grace Harbor, Washington, which is like in Southwestern Washington, kind of like near the coast. And he would take me to Olympic stadium and Hoquiam, which is like where they would have, where they would have like, you know, regional baseball tournaments that were hosted there. And actually there was minor league games we would see there too. Cause there were, there were, there were times where there would be, there were a minor league team would come in for a while and then they would invariably leave, but there were, there were times when they had a minor league team. In fact, like Bill Murray had an interest in one of the minor league teams that was there. So there was actually like a time when Bill Murray, like came to Olympic stadium, like for one of the uh, events, but, um, so like my grandfather was, I mean, that's, he was my best friend in addition to being my grandfather. So I cared deeply about him. My, my grandfather was a good man, like objectively, like he, he had been a chef. Um, uh, he worked in San Francisco for most of his career as a chef, um, before moving out to Washington um so he was like a big 49ers fan I mean, that was like his team um um and then we for college sports I and mean, he's from oklahoma so for college sports he like oh, he always followed the sooners um uh, and rooted for the sooners although he would root for the oklahoma state cowboys in baseball because like the sooners were never in the tournament so it's like he would just root for the cowboys because at least it was the oklahoma team that was like in the in the college baseball world series they never won. They always were there and competitive, but they never actually won. But <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so like, so, t so I, the thing that made me, the thing that in my childhood that like made me start doubting Christianity in the first place was twofold. Like, how could it be like, how, based on the theological framing I was raised in, how could it be somebody who was as profoundly good a person as my grandfather, who would like, oh, three, I forgot why I mentioned he was a chef. Like one of the things that he would do is that he would go to the mission and like hang out and talk to guys at the mission. And like a lot of times that like they were like, like if they were like cooks, like experienced cooks, you know, line cooks that had a problem with drugs or alcohol, he would like he would like bring them home, have coffee with them and like talk to them and like try to help them give, give, get their, get their lives straight, like recommend them for jobs to give them a second chance. If you thought they were actually serious about like, you know, getting their act together. So like, that's what I, when I say he was a good person, that's what, that's what I mean. Like just things that are just like, obviously object, objectively good. He was not religious though. He, he never stuff where you, you are personally interacting with people and, and uh, mentoring them and, and, and working in the nitty gritty details of their lives to help them in really profound ways. That's, that's, that's yeah, your person kingdom, making is what you're doing. Like, and that's, of, that's what being good is like, that's, yeah. that's what, that's what good in, a, in, in, in any meaningful sense is, is like, you are, you are using whatever it is that you have to help lift other people up and make them more fully persons and people who are stuck in addiction, they're not really they're not able to experience full personhood. They're cut off from that because of their addiction. So, um, 
that's just an example of what I'd say he was good. I mean, it's just, I don't mean it in a trivial way. Like he, this was definitely someone who was definitely a good person. And like everyone, like, and he was, he was very, he was very congenial. He, uh, he, he, he was always, you know, quick with a laugh or a joke or a smile. And like really everyone liked this person. Like, this is like, like no one disliked my grandfather. He was a very likable human being and he was really genuinely good, but he was not religious. <laughs> like for like and and um i spent a lot of my childhood i spent a lot of my childhood with my grandparents because my parents got divorced when i was quite young i was five when my parents divorced my dad is gay and the marriage was never going to work in the long run because my dad was gay um uh and uh um so my mom kind of it was really hit my mom really hard so um, when my parents um, split up, um, I moved in with my grandparents. And so I spent a huge chunk of my childhood with my grandparents. Uh, church was not part of that. Like it was part of like when I, at the times when I lived with my mom, church was definitely a part of that. But when, when, my, when I lived with my grandparents, that was not, it was not part of, part of it at all. And uh, so like, like the closest thing we had to a religious ritual uh, on Sunday mornings was to get up and watch the NFL today together. Like, so it's like, that's like, <laughs> so that, that was, that was our ritual. Um, and um, so the reason this connects is that like, like I just couldn't, the, the, so later on, when later on in my, like, I moved back with my, with my mom when I was 11. So like from five to 11, I'm living with my grandparents. My grandparents moved to Bullhead City, Arizona, and they were, they stay there for a couple of years. And I live with my mom from like 11 to 13. And now, and, and then it's like, she basically asked to force me to go to church. Cause I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I didn't like churches at the same time as the 10 o'clock Sunday morning game for the NFL. And it's like, that was my priority for sure. And also it's like, by this time, like by 11, it's like, I now, I'm now capable of actually thinking for myself and like, none of it makes sense to me either. It's like, so, um, and May I ask, is this the Catholic church? No, no, I'm, I'm okay. a convert. We'll get to that eventually. Okay. We'll get to that eventually. Pentecostal Pente oh, assemblies okay. of God. Yeah. So Michael, Michael and I actually like came up in the exact same like branch of the Pentecostal tradition. It was assemblies of God churches. Um, so, um, and which is what we went to when I was young too. So like when I was a little, little kid, you know, that's, that's where we were going. We were going to a big assemblies of God's church in Longview. Um, and, uh, so, but I had, I mean, she forced me to go, so I would go, <clears throat> um, but like my, me and my best friend would do things like we would just like, we would make up alternate lyrics during the hymns you know uh it's just like to make fun of them and um uh and uh we snuck into the the parsonage the pastor's parsonage to like go watch football <laughs> like when church was going on and um i was agnostic like that's like that's like i was like i never i never called myself an atheist because i thought like my because i kind of had this i'm sort of like 
maybe just because of the cultural waters, but I would, I would, I would, I think I would describe myself as being an intuitive postmodernist because it seemed to, it seemed to me to be kind of obvious that you can't like finite foundations offer no certainty. So to me, atheism was as, as arrogant and ridiculous a position as theism, because you're, you're claiming that you, you know, this thing that you can't possibly know for sure. Therefore, agnosticism is the only possible, like intellectually honest path. Um, I also, the problem of evil was like impacting me by that age too. It's like, how, how, how can you, how is this coherent? It's like, um, so, but I wouldn't, I never, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say there absolutely is no God, but if there is a God, he might be a, he, he might be a bastard given the state of affairs. Right. So, um, so why should I care about him? So in a way effectively, so even though agnostic in terms of like intellectual propositions, effectively an atheist. Correct. In other words, what is the difference between living in an indifferent universe and living under an indifferent God? Right. Exactly. Yes. So, um, I, okay, let's see. So that's like, and that's how I was until I was a freshman in college, a freshman in college. I was this like atheist leaning, like agnostic who was like de facto atheist in outlook, kind of like intuitively postmodern, like basically saying that we can't know anything for certain was, that was my most fundamental intuition. It's like, you can't know anything. So why are you dogmatically declaring things all the time? Um, and I stayed like that, you know, and, and that, 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 that continued to reflect my views. Um, so I, I was, here's the, here's the irony is I didn't want to be like that. It's how I was. It's not, it's not like, I didn't say like, this is how I want to be. I want, because I actually wanted to have like some kind of like, I wanted some firm, certain foundation. Like, of course, I, I don't, I think everyone does. Right. I think, I think that's like, a, I think everyone naturally, but not if you, so it's a matter of not being able to see it. Um, I, so I, I'm a freshman in college. I decided I wanted to, I, I knew that I wanted to study great books. So in high school, I had been a debater, like a pretty good debater. Actually, um, Pepperdine University actually was prepared to make me a scholarship offer, but I told, but I, but I actually refused to even meet with them <laughs> because I knew I didn't want to go there. So like, and my debate coach was like, really, he was like, you're an idiot. Cause he knew I had, cause I, I just, because he knew I, he did not approve of the college that he knew that I wanted to attend. Cause I had by that point made the decision that I was going to go to the Evergreen State College, which is in Olympia, Washington, which is pretty close to home. And I had, basically I was this, I knew I wanted to study great books. This was the part that was for sure. And the reason I wanted to study great books is like, if I'm going to find any like things solid, I think the way to do it is by engaging in with the greatest minds that have ever tried to tackle these problems, right? And I had read a lot of philosophy in debate. Debate had caused me to have to read a lot of philosophy. So um, 
but to read it for the purpose of like, I mean, it's for was for debate. So always reading it for the purpose of, okay, this is going to help me bolster this argument. This is going to help me help me bolster this argument. So it was always in this sort of like, um, how can I how can I use this thought to make the point that I want to make? Not <laughs> what Jordan Peterson would not call a genuine, right, right, yeah, yeah and not a genuine, no, no genuine search for truth there. I actually have kind of like I kind of have mixed feelings about debate and like what it does to people um uh to be honest with you um anyway i was very good at it though um and um and i read a lot of philosophy because the t the style of debate i did was lincoln douglas debate which is rather than rather than teams it's uh it's one-on-one -on -one, and they're always over value statements so they become very philosophical so um it will caused you to read a lot of philosophy because you have to look for some sort of like philosophical foundation in order to gauge in this values debate because if you're going to debate like which value is going that's going to be philosophical argument always 100 percent of the time so that's why i was forced to read a lot of philosophy um so uh i knew i wanted to study great books because of that like because i liked that i liked engaging with it and i liked reading it and i knew i wanted to read more of it and um i knew Everyone kind of assumed I would be was going to be a lawyer because I was a debater. I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer, and I and I and and I knew I didn't want to be a, a lawyer because I had this like I still wanted to be a good person, like right. So I still had like to me like it's like like this like objective moral goodness was like still super important to me, which is why I had object, which is the fact that like the religious system that I was brought up with would condemn someone like my grandfather, who was one, like the best person I had known in my life, would say, be, because you didn't agree with our abstract propositions, you are probably, if not certainly going to go to hell, right? So it's like, so I, 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 there was no way I was going to have anything to do with that. No way, it's like, it was just like, I would be, a, it would have made me a moral monster had I been able to accept it. Like really seriously, it was like to believe that your own grandfather is going to go to hell because he didn't say the right magic words at the right time. That's, 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 con that is absolutely condemnable. I mean, there, there's no way that that is a justifiable action. Well, there, there is, yeah. I mean, there is something curious about modern, especially Protestant Christianity um, in how successfully it manages to decouple um, salvation from uh, living a good life, uh, in, in, and uh, you know at least conceptually, right. once, they, once, they... Saved, once saved, always saved. Baptists are like the the quintessential example of that too. And like one of the other churches that I went to as a child was that kind of Baptist church. So it's just like. You know. A lot of other religions retain what would appear to be this common sense understanding that that the you know that wh whoever does right in every nation is acceptable to God basically, uh, and you know it, or, you know Jesus he says who is my family and who is my disciple is whoever is doing the will of my father and what is the will of his father just you know saying the sinner's prayer no it's building the kingdom, it's imitating Christ but. Right. But, uh, so here's the, yeah, right. And, and, and here's the thing. It's like this whole time I never stopped. I never stopped reading the Bible and I never stopped being profoundly impacted by 
the Christian story. Not, but the, I mean, I wanted to study great books, right? So I still, I, I like, I still like knew that this was important, but the understanding of it that I was being presented was just completely unacceptable. Um, so I go to college and um, I'm studying great books at Evergreen. I had decided to go to Evergreen, which was close to home. I had come very, very close to deciding to go to St. John's, um, which is a, uh, a great books college in, uh, they had, they had, they have two campuses. One is in, uh, uh, one is in Maryland and the other is in New Mexico. I would, I would want to go, I had wanted to go to the New Mexico campus because I was asthmatic. I thought the desert climate might agree with me. Um, um, and I knew I wanted to study great books, but then I saw that Evergreen was offering a great books program the year I would be entering. And I'm like, well, let me just do this and make, and I can find out if I really want to continue to study this. Cause you know, I mean, I'm young, I might change my mind. Um, and the tuition is lower. Um, and, um, I'm going to accumulate less debt and, um, I'm still going to get to study what I want to study. I won't have the Greek, but I can pick the Greek up later. You know, that's kind of like, cause, uh, it, there's four years of mandatory Greek at, at St. John's. Um, so I, um, so I, I go to Evergreen and I'm studying great books and, um, I'm engaging, like one of the things we're reading, we're, we're reading the, we're reading the Bible as part of this in, in the great books program. Um, we're most, we're not, I don't think we did it. I don't know. Yeah, we did some new Testament and we actually read, we actually read, read Luther's on Christian Liberty, which is like one of the books I hated most. Like, I just like what, like Luther was just like, I couldn't stand him. Like, like, <laughs> it's like, I just basically disagreed with everything <laughs> that Luther had to say. I really couldn't stand Luther. So, um, I, so I had this like visceral react. In fact, I, it's funny because I could remember like, um, one of my instructors, um, I think he was some kind of like mainline Protestant. Um, and I, and I know he liked Paul Tillich. who's like a liberal Protestant theologian, but I don't really, and I know he went to Emory, which is like, has a, like a Christian origin as a university. Um, I don't actually know what his actual specific, I think maybe, maybe Presbyterian. I'm not sure, but he was like, he was trying to, I can remember him trying to defend Luther to me, but I, I was having none of it. It was just like, yeah, it's just like, like, I really hated that book on Christian Liberty was like really awful to me. Um, it would be less awful to me now because I think that the primary thing that offended me about it was that at that time, like, um, like any American, like, uh, you know, that came out of age in the era that I came of age in, like libertarian freedom was just like a obvious, like th that libertarian freedom was this, the shape of freedom was just like, a was like, there was no questioning that because it was, it's so, it's so built into our culture. There's no way you're going to, you're going to question that. Um, and on Christian Liberty, obviously, is presenting a very different view of that. So I think that is the thing that I'm most fun. To, I probably would, would object to that less. I still don't like Luther. <laughs> but I would probably object to that particular thing that was the most triggering for me at that time. Um, so anyway, we're reading this, we're reading scripture as part of the Great Books program. And it's like, that's when I, far, that's when I start discovering Christian anarchism. Because it's like, I wrote a paper on like 
the I wrote a I wrote a paper defending Christian anarchism um, based on our study of uh, of Kings and Samuel in my Great Books program, and I read um, um, Jacques Ellul's um, Christian Christianity and Anarchy, which is actually like a fairly new book at that time. This was like this was 89, 89 or ninety, depending on which term it was in. I think it was in it was, it was I think it was nineteen ninety. Alul wrote that book in 19, or it was published in 1988. I, or that's when it was published, at least when it was translated into English. Um, so it was a fairly new book. And um, I also read um, Tolstoy's The Kingdom of God is Within You. And um, so, so I argued like from a combination of like scripture and these external sources that, uh, um, you know, that Christian anarchism was in fact the, the biblical political message. Um, so, um, I was a Christian anarchist before I was a Christian. <laughs> um, so, um, because I really thought like, to me, it's like, like the, the political morality of Christian anarchism to me made sense. Like if like being seriously dedicated to try to build a society that is based on forefronting love and reconciliation as the pillars of building the structure that that's worth doing whether you whether you believe the god and that is the gospel of jesus that is what his gospel is that's the gospel of jesus so whether you whether you believe the gospel about jesus or not that is something that is worth doing here's the thing though the very possibility that I can say that depends on the Christ event. Like there's no, it wouldn't be like the, the condition, like the conditions that make that something that someone can have as an intuition, like that's just built into their culture. That could not be if it wasn't for the Christ event. Like if that, if, if, if it didn't act, so it actually ends up becoming a proof it begins up becoming a, I didn't understand this yet, but if you really think about it seriously, if you take the gospel of Jesus seriously, it ends up becoming a proof for the gospel about Jesus. Because if you actually try to examine those principles fr from the standpoint of like cold logic, they don't make any sense at all. But yet we have this deeply intuitive felt sense that like, of course, of course, but objectively from the standpoint of logic like it, it doesn't make any sense and and very few people i mean well i mean nietzsche got that <laughs> like that's that's what nietzsche was that's why he's like this is ridiculous um but very few people actually make that move like most people just it's like we just like accept the intuition but the possibility that we can have that intuition is dependent on the christ event actually happening it, there's no there's no other way it, it happens. So, um, but I don't, ha I don't have that. I, I hadn't come to understand that fully yet. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm meandering here a bit. Um, the may, okay. So I'm, so I become a, I'm becoming a Christian anarchist in my political thinking. Um, um, and then here's where I start my, ag my sort of like agnostic arrogance and, my and my de facto um atheism rooted in the problem of evil um 
which I, which obviously, I mean, if you listen to the, everything I'm saying here, there's obviously a lot of cognitive dissonance around that too, because it's like, well, if I was really that deeply concerned about the problem of evil, it's like, like what, what is, what is your basis for wanting to, 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 to make love and reconciliation front and center? If that's really like, if you're, if, if, I mean, if the universe is a universe where like the problem of evil has no resolution, right? Then there's no reason to do that because it is in fact a meaningless universe, right? Okay. So anyway, but I wasn't aware of that cognitive dissonance like <laughs> at that time. Um, so one of the things that happens during, we're reading this book called The Tale of Igor's Campaign, which is widely regarded to be a forgery. Um, but it's a, it, it, it's a, it's a pagan, it's a pagan, uh, Slavic tale. Um, uh, and, um, the, the, the professor, uh, programs at Evergreen are taught by teams. There were the professors in the team of the great books program I was in were, uh, Patricia Kravchik, um, who was Ukrainian and Orthodox. And she's the one who chose that book. Um, and, uh, then Argentina daily, um, Nils Scove, who was an interesting guy. He was, he was in like, this guy was a literal Nazi hunter. Like he, <laughs> he was, he was, he was, he, he, he was, he was a Danish guy who had fought in the Danish resistance to the Nazis. And after the war became a Nazi hunter, like <laughs> really interesting guy. And his PhD was actually in like maritime engineering, but he was just like, just like, but he was like a polymath who just like knew so much about everything. So there he was. So he was teaching in a great books program, even though his academic background is in engineering. So he's a fascinating dude. And then Richard Alexander, um, who um, was, um, he pushed me to, he pushed me more than anybody, any professor I ever had in college. He took a personal interest in me and really, like, really pushed me to like, he's like, you have to do more than just what's like, if you're gonna, I mean, if you're serious, like, if you're serious about this, you need to do more than just what's the required reading, you know, in the course, you need to go outside that and expand yourself, which is why, um, which is why when I wrote my paper on Christian anarchism, it's, that's why I w started going and, and bringing in outside sources, because I like took his advice seriously, because he kind of like, um, I'd always gotten good grades and he kind of like the first couple papers I produced for him, he was like, didn't give me very good marks. And then, um, but then eventually he's like, he, he ended up like, once I started doing the kind of work he thought I was capable of, he started praising me and, and encouraging me. So just, which is what a good teacher should do anyway. Um, so, um, Patricia, Patricia Kravchik, um, had chose this, this, this Slavic tale that might may or may not be a forgery. It's an interesting read either way. Um, and we discussed whether it was a forgery or not as, as one of the things we talked about when we were reading it. But as part of the part of our, uh, while we're studying this, this Slavic text, um, um, Patricia Kravchik arranges a field trip to this Russian Orthodox or actually Ukrainian Orthodox chapel uh, in, rural, in rural Washington state that's it was probably about 45 minutes away from the campus. Um, and I, so I go on this field to, to this church and um, 
every so often, so this is like a historic, there's a larger, this, this small chapel that we went to on the field trip is actually attached to a larger church that's actually like closer to the city. But they have this historic chapel that's like 150 years old or something like that, where they occasionally have services. And when they have services in the historical chapel, the, 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 the services are in Old Church Slavonic, which is why um, she wanted us to go there because she wanted us to like be able to hear the liturgy and the Old Church Slavonic to give us some like cultural context for the, um, the text that we were reading. So she arranged this field trip and I go there and it was the most profound spiritual experience I've had in my entire life up to that point. And it's like, oh, so now I'm at Agno I, I, that, but I'm not, I don't instantly become a believer, but it puts this little seed and it's like, now it's like, okay. I, so I go from like agnostic who like basically thinks the problem of evil makes it questionable whether the universe has any meaning intuitively doubts that there can intuitively doubts that there can be any finite foundations to a seeker like so now it's like okay there there after that experience there might there might well be a god um um and now i'm gonna start looking so i'm so i'm start, so i'm start actively looking and I, as I'm at Evergreen, I'm a contrarian by nature. So I'm entering Evergreen. I'm a very progressive young guy that's not at all out of step with like the kind of Evergreen profile. Like, may I ask, is this the same Evergreen? That, oh yeah, it's that one. The, yeah, it's the it's Evergreen the State College in Olympia, Evergreen. Washington, where I still live. By the way, I'm actually, and I'm in West Olympia. I'm like really, I still live close to the campus. <laughs> yeah, I have a good friend who went to Evergreen too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but I very much fit the Evergreen profile. Um, and, uh, to some extent, but I was still, I was, I was, I don't want to say classically liberal because that implies libertarian. And I wasn't, I wasn't a libertarian yet, but I was, let's say classically progressive, like, um, and definitely like, economic issues were front and center for me. Um, and um, certainly, and social justice issues too, but um, um, I had had no, like nothing prepared me for like the kind of like, uh, um, at that time, like Evergreen was one of the places where even, even at that time, like you're starting to see like this sort of critical theory kind of thinking start to pop up and i was not i was not I, I was not prepared for that so and because i'm a contrarian like it started quickly making turning me into what would probably be labeled a classical liberal so my, my politics start leaning more libertarian i'm already like well i'm already becoming a christian anarchist so i just like i'm i'm like and so i just so i kind of like i actually kind of like apostatize my christian anarchism a little bit because um, um, voluntarist socialism is definitely a part of Christian anarchism properly conceived. So I start to like, out of this like counter reaction to my evergreen, I, I, to my evergreen experience, I kind of like, you know, um, indulging a little bit more of like a libertarian, like blind faith in markets, right? Um, so, um, so I start leaning more libertarian. I'm really, 
wanting to transfer and i'm start wanting to transfer to another school i was like ah that's not and and also like, richard alexander is like straight up told me like like you don't belong here um he like and the, the reason he told me i didn't belong there had to do what had nothing to do with the politics part he was saying that like he was saying that like basically this he was basically saying the school's gone to hell in a handbasket like even at that time from his point of view and like you're too academically serious you should go somewhere where you can like flourish more was more his point um so um i start looking for a place to transfer um like my my younger sister is going through some stuff at this time so it's like i end up take i ended up taking a year off from college um and then just kind of like um once things were I still hadn't decided where to go, where I was going to transfer to. So while things were like, and once things had settled down with her and like, I thought she was okay. It's like, I, I start like, I start like just taking some classes at like a community college, like in my hometown. And, um, and then I find finally, I'm like, and I'm, and by this time I'm like full blown neocon. Like, just like, I'm listening to, I'm, I'm reading Rush Limbaugh's books. I'm listening to Rush Limbaugh. I'm like reading American Spectator, National Review. And, and, you know, uh, William F. Buckley is like probably my biggest hero at that point. Um, and um, so I'm reading National Review and I see this ad for this college. That's a great books college. I'm like, it's in Southern California. I'm like, okay, it's on the West Coast. It's called Thomas Aquinas College. So I transfer. I, so I'm like, I decide I'm gonna transfer. To, I'm like, okay, now I know where I want to go. Um, um, and so I transferred to Thomas Aquinas College. And um, so I go, I, I go to Thomas Aquinas College, and um, for the first time in my life, I'm like around Christians who really can really think, right? um like and not only that not only I mean, they're to like like the professors are all thomas like and seriously like like intellectually gifted thomas at that so like they really can they really know how to argue for their position well and convincingly and i i start off like you know like resisting you know and like kind of being like the i'm i, I have no problem being like the contrarian uh, and the gadfly, um, and I embrace that role. And um, uh, um, I can remember, like, I was like, I can remember this this funny, like, I had this one of my one of my instructors, um, Dr. McAllister. I was like, I don't remember what the overall context of the conversation, but I can remember that I was questioning causality, right? And he's like, he's like, and his, his this is what he said to me. He's like. He's like, if I were to pull out a gun and point it at you right now, I'm betting you would duck, <laughs> you know? So he's like, yeah, he, so he's just like, you know, he's just like, he's pointing out like, uh, he's pointing out like that intuitively, like, I mean, like basically he's just, he's pointing out to me that I'm just playing a language game that I cannot, he, he, he's giving me an illustration to show that I'm playing a language game that I can't actually live out in reality. And so if you're, and that if you're taking philosophy seriously as a thing that might actually have something to say about a reality and apply to life, then it should be a philosophy that does not call into questions, intuitions that are so obvious that you cannot act 
otherwise, right? So, um, and in like, so, so I'm encountering, you know, I'm, 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 I'm living, I mean, you're, you have to live on campus at Thomas Aquinas College and there are no electives. So everyone's, everyone's studying the same things. It's a very small college. You have to live on campus. There's a strict dress code. There's a curfew. Um, so this is a place that, this is of course the place where I, being a contrarian, this is the place where I would decide of all places to start drinking, experimenting and, and, and experimenting with psychedelics and, um, um breaking all the rules because of course i would do that there because even though at ever evergreen at evergreen i was like i never left my door <laughs> i didn't go to the drum circles <laughs> i just <laughs> i put a poster of richard nixon on my door on my on the door of my dorm room at evergreen yeah right because of that contrary because that contrarian true. streak this is true contrarianism other gadflies <laughs> right. you need to get on this level <laughs> yeah i'm I'm a serious contrarian i mean I, I've, I've been that way for a long time in fact i had like i got kicked out of like in high school i got kicked out of my sophomore honors biology class i don't remember what i said but I, I like made my instructor so mad. He's like, and that's like, this is a class that I had like over a hundred percent in because of extra credit. So it's like, um, and, um, uh, Dwayne, Dwayne Rudrud was the name of my teacher. I still remember. So, so Mr. Rudrud, he's like, he's like, he looks at me and he's like, he's like, Nathan, you would stir shit just to make it stink more. Get out of my class. <laughs> So he said, and sent me to the vice principal's office, and it's like, so I had to like the vice principal had to like call him in later, and I apologize, and he liked me. I mean, it's not like he didn't like me. I was a good student, and he liked me. It's just like I, I, he just like had enough of my bullshit because I will, I actually do have a tendency to stir shit just to stir shit. Um. So anyway, that's a, so of that's course, a young Tom, man's game. It gets it gets moderated with age, but that's but right. It's it's, it's still like you know just like just existence itself as jordan peterson likes to point out it, it is this balance or interplay between chaos and order freedom and constraint the truth is often you know you know some kind of if you will a virtue of moderation or some kind of force or doubt that's like the balance the, that that very thin sharp edge between the two Right. Yeah. Uh, but that's like, like, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically the core of Aristotle's ethics. This is how we, we, as a species in a society arrive at truth. We have, we have people who we have iron sharpening iron. We have, you know, we have struggle, we have tension, we have polarity and, you know, the gadflies are sort of people who ensure that there's always at least a little bit of yeah. So anyway, yeah, I've on. definitely been, I've been in that role. I've been, I've been in that role in my life, especially in my youth. Um, so anyway, yeah. So of course, you know, Thomas Aquinas College is like, and in fact, it's like, it, it was so like, there's actually, actually like, it's funny because I was actually more popular at Thomas Aquinas College than I have ever, ever been in my, had ever been in my life. Like people like, so it's like, I was like, you know, kind of had this rebel bad boy kind of image, which is so weird because that's so not anything I ever was. Um, and like, they, they they actually like a lot of the more like prim and proper young women at, would like, like refer to me and the other two guys that I hung out with the most as the unholy trinity. So, <laughs> and like would warn other young women like to not, you know, oh, don't hang out with them. <laughs> kind of thing anyway um so uh yeah so the, so 
so I'm doing that. And so this thing happens because I'm behaving like that. Like my, my, uh, my doormate had invited me to his, um, his, his parents place in Marin County for Thanksgiving holiday. Cause, um, it was like too short a holiday for me to bother to go all the way back to Washington from Southern California. So, um, I'm like, yeah, that's cool. I'll do that. But like the night before we were supposed to leave, I got so I, I, I got I got blackout drunk. In fact, I can remember I was laying on the floor of the bathroom in our dorm and one of the priests, <laughs> one of the camp, there were like there were like three, three priests on campus, I think. One Italian, one one Irish and one German <laughs> priest. And it was the Italian priest whose name I don't remember. I'll get to the priest whose name I do remember in a moment, though. Um, okay. So the, like, it's the Italian priest and he's like standing over me and he's like, like, son, are you okay? <laughs> and like, I think he's the one who helped me up and get me to my, cause I don't actually remember how I ended up getting into my bed. And then I remember like, once I was in my bed, I remember like having like the spins really bad. And, um, uh, so, um, and I, I like blackout, like, I don't even, I don't I actually don't even really, oh, I think we had been. I think we had been at like uh, Caro's, which is like a kind of like a California version of Denny's. And we were studying, um, we were studying Euclid. <laughs> and we were like, we, we were, we, we were, uh, we were working on um, like um, memorizing the Euclidean proofs for that, for what we were studying for that week and trying to come up with alternate proofs. And then I think we studied Latin too. So yeah, so we also did like, we quizzed each other on Latin vocab and we're studying Euclid and we're drinking bourbon the whole time we're doing this because they have like these bottomless Cokes. So we had snuck, we had a bottle of, we had a, like, we had a bottle of Jim Beam with us. And so um, like a liter bottle of, of Jim Beam. <laughs> and I think we polished off the whole thing. And there were like, I know it was me and the other two members of the unholy trinity eric reslock and lee ray um and uh um i think lee's lee's girlfriend who was just a just a really really sweet awesome young woman was might have been there with us um i don't remember who else but i know I, i'm pretty sure that stacy lee's girlfriend was with us um anyway um like i got super drunk i remember like at one point we were walking in like uh like a like a reservoir or something and yeah but anyway i ended up it was it, i ended up blacking out and and my and the my roommate could not rouse me so he goes to moran without me so i'm i end up i end up by myself in the dorm well not to well, okay not totally by myself um my friend jason who i'm still in contact with was actually like one of the few people that was still in the dorm and I had this interesting conversation with Jason and he is talking to me about like um, uh, some Russian Orthodox writer that he's reading at the time. And uh, I'm questioning my life decisions <laughs> at this point. And like uh, my, one of my, one of my dorm mates, um, Adam Gardner, who um, I sound, I think like, I, I, we don't interact much, but I think I'm like still like, in contact with him on Facebook or something like that. But, um, I, and he was actually like, we actually had like, 
for whatever reason, our dorm had like quite a few people from Washington and like, and like Adam was from Seattle and um, he like has had been observing my behavior from afar. So he's like, he, he's like, he's like, Hey, uh, you want to come to a meeting with, he, he's, he's like recovering alcoholic. And so he takes me to an AA meeting with him and um, uh, Mike listening to like, I've never, you know, it's funny. Like I was, I never really was a drinker at, at any time in my life other than that. And I, and I've only been to that one AA meeting ever from that point on. It was like, I learned to drink like a, a sane, rational person. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, but I'm also like, I'm trying to like, I'm like, what, okay. So I'm not kind of like, what am I doing here? I'm making these terrible, my grades are not suffering though at all. That's a weird thing. It's like, um, like, I think my GPA, well, I'm I, okay. This is going to make me, I think my GPA was three, you know, it was, yeah, it was three, seven. Um, it should have, it should have, it would have been higher except for I, my biology class, which was, which was, which was, it's a great books college. So we're studying Galen uh, <laughs> as the biology text. <laughs> it was, I just found Galen like super boring. So I just kind of like, I got a B. But it's like so this is it was undergraduate not, we're talking about yeah at, at Thomas Aquinas College yeah correct yeah right so we're studying we're studying Galen were you uh, the were you the same age as most of the other undergraduates or were you older I was a young? little older I was a little older um like because I, I was I was entering as a freshman and I was twenty one right so like but there were some other like Adam Adam was twenty five so um I wasn't the oldest and my am uh my my friend eric uh, eric and lee the two, the other two guys that i hung out with the most like well no lee was not quite lee was 20 and had a really bad fake id <laughs> that somehow he never got questioned because he's he's from missouri he was he was 20 with a really bad fake id but eric and i were both over 21 because like i even feel like no one even like no one even questioned his crappy fake id when we were in vegas like w w there was like one time where it's like we'd had like about four glasses of wine in the middle of a campus event uh like there they served would serve wine at the campus events and like even like the underage kids were like allowed to drink but there was like, like a strict limit you're like cut off like this is the cutoff this is your maximum and it's like we, we were getting we were getting a we were getting a good buzz on and we just like decide spontaneously hey why don't we just go to vegas so we just <laughs> so we, we ran to the liquor store and uh uh and uh loaded you know loaded up on supplies and we just took off to vegas in the middle of the night and i ended up winning like enough money to cover the expenses of our entire trip on a on a parlay bet on college football um which like I started getting actually that story got around campus to the point where like priests were asking me for gambling advice <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh, so um yeah okay so in any case so that that's so, so um that's what's going on. And then, so I'm stuck there on campus. I have this conversation with Jason. Um, and then Adam invites me to that AA meeting and I'm like, and then I'm like, okay, I need to figure out what's going on. So I start, so I go to the library 
and um i had my i had been i had been i'd had this one of my instructors david quackenbush who actually went to Evergreen? He was an Evergreen alum, believe it or not. <laughs> it's a degree from Ever. His undergraduate degree was in holistic medicine from Evergreen, and then he had his master's in philosophy from Notre Dame, and he was still working on his PhD at that time. He was like my seminar instructor, and he had been bugging me to read Chesterton for a while. So it's like, so I go to the library and I get like a bunch of Chesterton, and it's like I had read C.S. Lewis's, you know. Um, fiction as a child. Um, I had read um, uh, all the Chronicles of Narnia and the Paralandra series. And I'd read like, I'd read Screwtape Letters too. Um, but I hadn't really run, read any of his apologetics works at that point, apologetic works at that point. But Lewis was somebody that like, whose name I knew. So I got God in the Dock by C.S. Lewis. So it's like God in the Dock and then G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. And I think also um, like there, a Chesterton biography. Um, it may have been like his autobiography. Um, I don't remember for sure. Because um, this is like 92. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Anyway, um, so I am I, I, in the dorm and I'm reading all these books and it's like, okay, it's like, I'm at least a theist at this point, like of some sort. And it's just like, so it's like, in fact, and in fact, like at the, I, I'm probably a Christian, but I got to figure out what it's like. And I didn't want to be Catholic. I did not want to be Catholic. And I didn't want to be Catholic because it's like, if I start, because if I, if there is, if there, if, if, if I live in a universe where there is a God, like then like, what if my mom what if my mom was right because my mom like my mom had like always my mom is a very how should i describe it she's a very highly intuitive like naturally mystical kind of person at the same time she's like very committed to her kind of pentecostal depends on what mood you get her in like like I think the politics like keep her like committed to the tribal propositions more than anything else. Cause she's very like invested in like conservative politics because of anti-abortion, but it's really the anti-abortion that drives her, which is, so it's like her prime, her primary reason for being attracted to that is really just, it's, a, it's still, a, it ends up coming down to a moral intuition. So it's kind of like within, but anyway, but like she has these modes where she's like, has a very naturally kind of like intuitive mystical kind of bent. It's like she's a songwriter, um, um, and she writes like basically exclusively like um, Christian music. And although it's like it's not like it's nothing like the, the stuff she writes isn't anything like popular contemporary Christian music. It's more like in a, like Christian music in like a classical sort of country style. She's from Alabama, so I mean she. Um, anyway, um, so she had always told me like my whole life, like she would be like, like, especially she would like, she actually liked to remind me of it more when I was like, not a Christian. She would like, she would tell me like, God promised me that you would have a ministry like John the Baptist. Like she was like, she thought I was destined for ministry. Like that was just like her. 
And she would remind me of it all the time. And the, she said, like, when she was pregnant of me, with me, she was, like, young. And, like, her friends were telling her that maybe she should think about, like, not continuing with the pregnancy. And, like, God spoke to her and and told her that, like, that that I would be a boy, first of all. Like, because she didn't know, because this was in the, this is, this is in the, this is, like, in 1970, right? um and um you, you don't know the gender until the birth <laughs> in 1970 so first of all correctly so the fact that that the gender was correct like enforces her sense that this was a this was the right intuition anyway so she told me that my whole life so it's like i don't want to become a catholic because if my mom is right and i become a catholic that means i have to become a priest and that is the last thing i want to do so it's like so i act so i end up i end up I love Thomas Aquinas College um, uh, a lot. I really, it was a great place. Um, I, I would recommend anybody to send their kids there. Um, I, I, I keep trying to talk my son into going there. So I, I um, but I transferred, I transferred, I transferred back because basically just be, for a whole bunch of reasons. One of them was because I have this weird, okay. I'll give you a chance to psychoanalyze me. <laughs> I have this weird thing where like, um, I do not, I cannot ask for help. Like, I just like, I have to do things myself and I cannot ask for help. And um, I had got, I had my work scholarship job that I was given, like I had been working as a line cook in the summers for years and like had a lot of professional kitchen experience. And so it's like when I was applying for a work scholarship job, I asked to be put in the kitchen. And like with my experience, I thought that like I would actually like be like working in the kitchen. But Thomas Aquinas College's approach is like, no, you just like they just like they treat everybody the same and you just you start at the bottom and you work your, you have to work your way up into like the more desirable position. So like I was given a job of like basically like cleaning, cleaning bathrooms and like this list of stuff, but I had no idea what I, how I was actually supposed to do the job and nobody, and no, and nobody trained me. So it's just like, I had the choice to either ask somebody what I was supposed to do or to just stop or just to not do it. <laughs> and I chose to just not do it. Cause I, first of all, I was resentful of having that position. Cause I thought it, I thought that like I should be I was an experience, actually an experienced line cook who was really good and there's no reason I shouldn't be actually in the kitchen. So there was that part of it. And then the other part of it is like, nope, I'm not going to ask anybody like what to do because this is not a thing that I have the capacity to do. I do not, I, I don't like asking for favors. I don't like asking for help. I just, I just don't. And, and I've always had this issue. Um, so, um, I really, so this, eventually this comes to the attention of the financial aid office and I'll get called in the financial aid office and they're like, yeah, you're like way behind on your work hours. You like, haven't been doing your stuff. And so they put me in, so they put me into, they, they, the way they responded was really kind. Like they just put me in, they were like, okay, that's no problem. You can make, make it up. Um, and so they put me into a position where, um, I, was uh calling donors past donors and like soliciting donations and i was actually like reasonably good at that 
but I'm like really far behind and um, it's like I had like had to give up all my transfer credits to enter because and start over again and I'm like ah like maybe I, I'm and I'm a little bit homesick so it's like with all those factors it's like I decide to like leave so um, I I end up moving back to Washington State and I ended up finishing up at Evergreen. But what I do, and, and the reason I, and the, what I just see, the thing with Evergreen is like, Evergreen is a very unusual, like, school. So like, you can actually just like, so what I did when I went back to Evergreen is I didn't do any programs. I didn't do any Evergreen programs. I just went back and did independent contracts the rest of my time at Evergreen. So I would just like, write a contract for what I wanted to study, find a professor who would sponsor it, and do it. So like, I did like, I did a contract on like the, like on the, on the history of, 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 of Marian theology. I did, a, I did a contract on early church fathers. Um, as I got closer to graduation, it's like, holy crap, I, this great book stuff is awesome, but I might have to actually get a job. So it's like, I need to have some skill set. So I did an internship as a sports writer. And I did a and I did a research paper on the history of Negro League baseball because it's like okay I'm gonna I'll I'll just do this I'm gonna I'll, I'll try to I'll try to become a sports writer and, and do journalism so I changed my major to journalism uh, toward the end of my college career after having basically studied great books like the entire rest of the time um, I spent the last year like you can kind of like say you can at Evergreen is a liberal arts college you can kind of like if you if you have enough credits, you can kind of justify putting anything as your major. So it's like, I put, I ended up putting, it's just your emphasis. So it's a liberal arts degree with an emphasis in journalism based on my, my research project, my year long research project and my internship. Um, um, my and I didn't do that until my last year. Um, so um, I, at this point I like, I met, uh, I met a young woman who had two kids and um, well, let's wait, let me back up. I'm actually, I've, I'm okay. actually missed an important part. <laughs> back up, back up before that, before that. So like, after I left Thomas Aquinas college, it's like, I, it's basically, so I'm like, okay, I know I need to be a Christian, like, but what am I going to be? So I called up like the smartest Protestant that I knew. Um, and uh who was had been like my debate teacher like well like 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 not my main debate teacher who was like actually an instructor at the school but we had like an independent outside like consultant who was brought in to just work with the lincoln douglas debaters who i worked more closely with and i was and i had a closer bond with and was really kind of more my teacher anyway and he was a very smart guy and he was a very and he was a very skilled debater and um had been a mentor to me as a debater so it's like okay if I, if there's a protestant who's going to be able to talk me out of this this is the guy david palmer so i called david palmer um and he i think i think he started as a methodist and then he ended up becoming like church of nazarene um uh yeah i think he may have still been a methodist at that time i'm not sure but he's a he he went from from Methodist to Church of Nazarene, but I'm not sure if he'd gone to Church of Nazarene at that point. Anyway, I call him up, and it's like I'm arguing with him pillar by pillar over the Reformation, and it's like he didn't have any like good counter arguments to the 
to the Catholic position. It's like, I'm like, I, and, and he didn't seem, and he, he didn't seem all that invested in it. I think he was just excited that I would, he was just excited. I mean, he was just excited that I w was becoming a Christian period. And he didn't really care whether I became Catholic or Protestant, like that was enough for him. So it's like, he wasn't like super vested in, uh, um, he wasn't super vested in, in, in talking me out of it. And, um, so I decide like, okay, that's it. So I, then I start, so it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to become Catholic and see where that goes. And I'm thinking at this point, it's like, I'm resigning myself. It's like, I'm probably going to, I'm going to probably end up becoming a priest. Uh, and in fact, it's like, I start looking at the potential of like going to Franciscan university of Steubenville like I actually like filled out the application and got accepted. Like, so I was like really seriously thinking of going to Steuben Steubenville and, 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 uh, and, uh, going to seminary. Um, and, um, I, I, so I became, I converted to Catholicism in 95, three years after I left Tom's no, two two years after I left Thomas Corns College, because I was in Thomas Thomas Corns College was ninety two to ninety three. So two years after I left Aquinas, uh, Easter ninety five, I was confirmed, and um, I'm applying to Steubenville, and um, and I'm still I'm still at Evergreen at that time, like doing independent contracts, um, and but I'm almost finished, and I'm considering this 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 move and applying um and then i meet this woman who uh is like um i'd only had up to, at this point i'd only had one previous relationship in my life that was very brief with a woman who like literally threw herself at me at a party like and um Cause like I had never knew how to talk to girls, <laughs> never, ever, ever knew how to talk to girls. Um, in fact, when I, <laughs> there was this one, okay. This fun, funny Thomas Aquinas story, another one. So, uh, uh, we had this, there was one night when we were all kind of like hanging out in the common room of our dorm. And we were like, we did this, we, we were doing this thing where like, we were like, we're just kind of like, you know, everybody's getting to know every, everybody better. And like, everybody's putting forth, like we're, we're, we're giving people titles. Right. So, uh, and like, uh, the two titles I was given as a result of this conversation was, uh, first of all, my friend Jason, like nominated me for minister of psychedelic mushrooms. <laughs> so, um, I, because of like the whole, like experimenting with psychedelics thing that I mentioned earlier. Um, and then, um, I, then I, uh, someone else who I can't remember who it was, like nominated me for babe magnet who doesn't know it. So it's like, so it's like, but I just never knew how to talk to girls. Anyway, um, so my first relationship is just with this girl who like threw herself at me at a party. I like there. I had had I had other young women who I knew that like who I whom I knew had crushes on me, but I just wasn't interested in. But like any, but this is, so my first relationship, it's just like this, this girl throws myself, throws herself at me at a party. And it's like, I try to take something that was 
had no dignity and tried to give it some dignity by trying to actually form a relationship with her. It didn't work out. I think we were together for like maybe two months. It was very, very short. So, and that's the only relationship I've had at this point. So I meet this young woman who has um, already has two kids and has just like left her husband in, in, uh, in, in Nevada. And it's like, I ended up falling for her and falling for kids at the same time. In fact, maybe I fell for the kids more than it was her that I fell for. Her. And it's like, so it's like, I, I, I ran off to Nevada with her and just, um, uh, um, started like, you know, working as a cook again. And then, um, uh, um, the, she ended up, she ended up like, she ended up having a bunch of affairs. Um, and, um, I, I thought maybe if we moved back to Washington, that things would get better. So we moved back to Washington. Um, we had, had a, we had my daughter, my, my daughter, Gloria, as a result of this relationship, we never did get married. One of the, one of the reasons that she, one of the reasons that she talked me into, one of the ways she talked me into moving to Nevada with her was like, oh, it'll be easier, easier for us to get married in Nevada. But then once we actually moved to Nevada, we never actually did get married. So even though I def I wanted to. Um, and um, so um, I'm still like, so I still consider myself Catholic at this time. And in fact, I'm arguing, I'm arguing like pro-Catholic. Her, her family is very, very evangelical fundamentalist. And I'm arguing theology with like her, her sister's husband and her dad and like something has happened. I'm not sure if it's the connection or can you hear me? Are you, are you back? I think my yeah. headset went out. Sorry about that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just my head, my headset went out for a second. Um, well, you said that, that her family were very Protestant. In their... Super. Yeah. Very evangelical Protestant. Um, and uh, um, just stock standard. Um, uh, and in fact, well, the only, actually her dad was specifically very Baptist, like one of those like Baptists who actually took seriously the claim that the Baptist church had, can, can trace its origins to John the Baptist kind of Baptist. Like, um, and so I would argue with them and I was still considering myself Catholic very much uh, at this time, but it's like, because of the life I'm living, I'm not really practicing at all. Um, so um, uh, we moved back to Washington um, and I start going to, I start going to mass again you know, going and, 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 uh, going to confession, but I'm still living with this woman who I'm not married to and won't marry me. And, um, she continues to like in Washington, nothing changes. She continues to have affairs like, uh, eventually like, but I have, but I wouldn't end the relationship. It's like, because, uh, for, like mainly because of the kids. And also it's just like, like, I feel like, it's failure if I don't somehow figure out a way to make it work, um, despite everything that's going on. So, um, she, one of her best friends committed suicide and she became super depressed and suicidal and, um, was like, she was like 
burning herself with cigarettes and cutting herself and um at one point and and then she's like she starts like basically not caring at all like so she actually like so she 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 brings a guy she's super drunk she brings a guy home from the bar with her i had been sleeping on the couch with my daughter um like not wondering when she was going to come home and what was going on and it's like i just politely asked him to leave because like she was like super out of it and um she was like wanting to go back out out and i'm like you're like you're not in any state to go back out because like i was concerned like so um she she goes into the she goes into the bedroom uh and she tries to hang herself in the closet so i like i help her i mean i i stop her from hanging herself in the closet her immediate reaction is to run to the phone call the police and claim that i assaulted her but the only problem is and the like and who knows what would happen with that except for she immediately told the truth to her cousins who like came over afterwards after like the police took me away and i spent the night in jail um and uh so like I had a really incompetent, I had a really incompetent, like public defender who was like, just basically doing nothing for me. So it's like, I'm like, I'm, but I know that she's told the truth to her cousins, like immediately after the fact. So it's like, I, I'm like, I'm going to call the prosecutor myself if you don't do anything and like, let him know. And he's like, no, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. I just, I ignored him and I did it. I called the prosecutor and like, it resulted like with within a week like they like dropped the charges but there's like there's this this whole time while that's being resolved there's a no contact order so she's moved she's she's she, she's moved her she's moved her boyfriend into the apartment and so it's like there's no so she made it made she basically made it so that like it was ended whether i wanted no matter what i wanted so she did me a favor really <laughs> I mean, honestly, she did me a favor, but I would probably not have had, I, cause I probably would have never had the will to, to get out of it. Um, so, um, I, um, moved back to my hometown, got a job, uh, um, as a sous chef at, um, a little bistro in my hometown. And, um, I then, uh, I, um, started going to church again. Um, and then I like, I, I met my, my wife, my, my first wife, um, like around this time. Um, and we were, we were like, so I'm talking to you about 1998 right now. That's like 1998. That's like when this, this whole thing is happening. I can actually, I can remember like when I first moved back to my hometown, it was like right around the Super Bowl. Um, and it's like, I think it was like, who was in the Super Bowl? I think it was the Ravens. Like it was that first Ravens team, like the Trent Dilfer quarterback Ravens team. So maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was like early 99, I think, because I think that was 99. This is a useful method of dating, by the way. 
Yeah, it's, I know, it's, right? It's a yeah. useful method of chronological yeah. <laughs> So I think that I think that Raven's team was was it ninety nine or two thousand? No, it had to have been. I think it had no, it had to have been ninety eight because I, I I was married in ninety nine. So I think it had to be. I it had to be ninety eight. Had to be ninety eight. So it might have been like it might have been very early ninety nine. Um, but in any case, like I, like my sister, like introduces me to this friend of hers. My sister's like, she's, she's finishing up her, my, my, my sister's an English teacher. She's just finishing up, finishing up her teaching program at, at St. Martin's college this time at this time. And like one of her classmates at St. Martin's, um, is, um, was my first wife. Um, and, um, uh, I was introduced to her actually when I was still, I was actually introduced to her when I was still with um, Jennifer, who was, that's my, my daughter, Gloria's mother. Um, and um, like, I remember thinking she was really cool. Like she was like, uh, she was a poet. I, and I was writing poet. I, 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 this is, this is after I had started writing poetry. Um, and, uh, and my sister right is a writer. Um, so, um, we kind of like, we're getting together at this little, and, and then another, like my girlfriend's cousin, Aaron is also a writer. So like, we're all getting together at like this little like pub and like reading poetry. And, um, I've always been kind of a Francophile actually at, at one point in high school, I pro at one point in high school, I like thought I was pretty sure I wanted to major in French in college. Um, and probably the only reason I didn't end up majoring in French was because my French teacher could not get approval to do an independent study with me because my school did not offer um, a fourth or a fifth year French. And I had finished, I had finished, I had finished three years of French already uh, as a, as a, as a sophomore. And in fact, he already had me doing like independent, like extra assignments like so he had me like doing some translation work like on the side um uh and in fact like one, like, one of the things i did is like I, I i did a um i worked on a translation of the chanson de roland from like the um from the old french it's a very old song it's about killing muslims yes right? yeah AOI. yes it's very old yeah 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 it's, yeah it's very old um not that i so... think that's nice or good <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> but so yeah i was he, like i was in a side project and it's like he's like yeah like he kind of figured he could just keep doing that right and like give me like fourth and fifth year french credit um by just giving me side projects and kind of like monitoring what i was doing and uh, but the administration wouldn't approve it so it's like oh so i just switched to spanish and studied spanish too and, um uh and you know languages it's like if you don't keep studying them and using them it's like you lose them so but yeah i was very so but she was writing she was writing french poetry right so so and I'm like oh like she'd actually so she some of the poetry she, she was reading she was reading was actually written in french and so it's like, oh, this, like this, this, this woman is very cool. I'd like to get to know her better. Um, and that was actually like shortly before my relationship completely collapsed um, due to forces. <laughs> um, and uh, once I'm 
actually, once that relationship was actually ended and I'm trying to put my life back together, like my sister, like invites me to, um, an event at St. Martin's college where this friend of hers is going to be there because they're both getting, they're both getting awards for their poetry from the college, like, because of their contributions to like the student, like literary journal. Um, and like, so they're both doing poetry reading. Um, and it's like, I'm like, okay. So I like, I'm like, <laughs> I told you I could never talk to girls. <laughs> the same thing applies even with my wife. It's like, I had to like, like a junior high kid. I had to like, Hey, will you, we, will you see if she's open to me calling her and asking her out? Like, so I have to use my sister's as an intermediary before I even get the nerve up to call. You, to call you her. should have had like a very attractive and personable friend convey your poetry to her <laughs> and then just hope that she didn't fall in love with the, the friend. That, that, oh, that, oh, that's so funny because the like, Cyrano de Bergerac is like, that is, I love, like, I love, I love that place so much. I love that place so much. Um, and like, like my absolutely, like one of my top five favorite films of all time is the, the 1990 uh, French language adaptation with Gerard Depardieu um, as Cyrano. I love that film so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, he has, he has the nose for that. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's just so, yeah, it's, and yeah, it's just really good. Like, oh my gosh, like the no mercy scene in that, in, in that particular production is just like so well done. I just love that. Um, and it's very much like kind of my spirit too. It's like, <laughs> no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it on my own. Damn it! Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, so, um, so I, I mean, it's obvious like why I identify with that character. In any case, um, so let's pause. Let's pause the recording yeah. right here. Okay. I'm gonna just use the. What we were talking about was. Um, well, there, there, there was, there was uh, the person who was to become your first wife, and she was yeah. receiving an award for her poetry, basically. Right. Yeah, let me backtrack. Let me backtrack really quick, and then I'll get back. To, I'll get, I'll get back to telling the story of my first marriage. But there is something important on the on the theme of universalism that I need to that I need to um, that I need to address. Um, be, uh, and that is so as I'm becoming Catholic. Um, I'm becoming like very, very like rigidly conservatively Catholic. Like th uh, this, uh, this is around like, so my conversion was in 95. That's also the year that my grandfather died. And it's like, I had gotten to the point like where I was so rigid in my Catholicism that I'm like, no, my gay dad is going to burn in hell. And I just have to accept that. Um, so, um, um, and that because it's just like well that's what the arguments say uh, you know that's what the arguments say so must be true um um aquinas can't be wrong eternal conscious torment must in fact be the case um so um and then my grandfather dies and then i gave my and i gave my i gave my grandfather's eulogy and that was the moment where it's like I knew that was the, th that was the, that was the thing that made me understand, like to truly understand the Christian story that I was trying to live into, like universalism was a part of that vision. And the, the, the eulogy I gave was a eulogy about my grandfather's life, but it was also a eulogy 
that was focused on the restoration of all things as its core message. That was my theme for the eulogy was the restoration of all things and how like the only way that this universe is not meaningless is through the restoration of all things. If the restoration of all things is not the story, then we're all wasting our time. Like th that's the only, the restoration of all things is the only story that makes sense of anything. That, so this is the theme for my eulogy. Um, and the only thing that makes sense of the problem of evil in some way too. Right. So this, right. Which breaks up the rigidity of my, of my call of my Catholicism and kind of like opens the door for me to uh, end up on a different path. So, so then getting back to getting back to meeting my first wife. Um, and this, I mean, I was, we were married for like 18 years. So this was like, it was not a failure of a marriage entirely. Yeah. Let me let me ask a question about when you were eulogizing your grandfather. You bet. Are you saying that at the time that you delivered the eulogy, you were convinced that some restoration of all things, including a, a, a reconciliation of all souls would take place? So are you saying like prior to the delivery of that eulogy, you had already sort of undergone an internal um, uh metamorphosis if you will in, in, into something like uh, a Catholic the event universalist. of my grand the event of my grandfather dying just like brought home and and I, I i i knew i wanted to write the eulogy because like i said this is like he was my best friend in addition to being my grandfather so it's like i knew i i i, I and i was a, i mean i was i was a, i was a championship platform speaker and debater so it's like it, like not only like so it's like i knew i I had the deep connection, but I also had the skill set to deliver a really high quality eulogy because I'm an excellent platform speaker. So it's like, I knew I wanted to do it um, because I knew it would honor my grandfather because I would give him a eulogy that would be memorable. And I did in fact do that. And in, and in fact, like my atheist aunts were weeping. They were weeping like, and I can remember the look on my dad's, like, I, I remember hugging my dad afterwards and my dad was so moved by it too. And it's like, um, so like, I never doubted it from that point on. I never doubted it from that point on that that's like how the, that's how the story has to end. There are two points I want to make here because sure. they've been occurring to me throughout your whole story, basically. Two things. Um, I, I, th I think we're both, I know we've both read uh, books by David Bentley Hart. I think that uh, uh, in our different ways, we're both fans of his. Um, yeah. And there's some, you know, there is something that David Bentley Hart wrote in a sort of precy or an interview about his book, That All Shall Be Saved. And he said, what I'm arguing in this book is that if the Christian story is internally coherent, and I'm not insisting that it is, these are his words, then the only way that it is coherent is um, uh, uh, when it results in salvation for all. And a lot of the, not, 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 not the only, um, his, his arguments didn't solely depend on um, his, his considerations of what a person is and the interrelationships that a person is composed of. Right. Um, but, but that was one of his major premises. And at this point, I wanna ask you a sideways question. 
and ask you whether your experiences with psychedelics, uh, in particular mushrooms, yeah, actually um, connected in any way with with that 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 argument of, of yes. uh, David Bentley Hart. For sure. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Um, like, it's like you, the thing about those experiences is those experiences, like, they give you a window into the the fundamental connectedness of all things. So it makes you like, it turns that kind of thing that that kind of like relational metaphysical thinking into anything but an abs like very much not an abstraction. It's like, you know, this is talking about reality as it actually is. So if you've had that experience, you know that that it, this is very much not a word game that's being played, that that is in fact actually what holds reality together, that it is in fact this like massive, like interconnected web of relation, then that's what holds everything together. Which is, which is, which is why salvation has to be universal because our, our, our fate is ultimately not our fate alone. We are our brother's keeper in a far more deeper level than we understand. Like, there's, I think orthodoxy, like, kind of has, like, it doesn't get this perfectly, but it kind of has, like, like a, a, a kind of, like, a built-in understanding of this. Like, I talked about it, I, the spontaneous conversation we had yesterday. Um, I ended up, I ended up mentioning this, but like, in orthodox countries. I don't know if it's still done, but there was, there, but at least in the past, like when a country like went to war, the entire country would be excommunicated. Like, because that was seen as representing like a failing of the church to be the church. So it had, like, so it kind of has this sense of like just exactly how interconnected things are. So it's even though like, so in a way, like, you know, you are, you are in a way responsible for everything. Um, and um, um, yeah, so yeah. Yes, so definitely the answer to your question is yes. So yeah, and, and I mean, certainly it's gonna sound like a, a poor argument for universalism and a sort of uh, morally self-discrediting one uh, to those who are, are let's say, <laughs> approaching things from a very, you know, from what Luke, our friend Luke would call a sort of logically atomized mindset. Right. A, a spirit of uh, anti-communion, a spirit of, well, a sort of abstract, if you will, left brain manipulation of sort of abstract icons for narrow self-advancing instrumental purposes where theology almost is, is a, is a power game of, you know, you know, being the one who is right and, and, and right. having others submit or be heretics. And, um, you know, the, the thing is, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that, that if you follow the logic long enough, you'll see that it, that it actually terminates in universal, um, salvation but right. at the same time there's not there's i suppose there's not sufficient time um to, to get into these these matters here although it would be interesting to see you uh, to see how you with your uh, background in debate would handle uh, certain uh common objections that are leveled against universalism right 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 
Um, but at this well, point, I think I, I, I think Dave, David Bentley Hart. I, I I don't really think that there's there there's in terms of like just from the argumentatively the way Hart does it. I don't know if there's much improvement to be done because I think what what I think what what maybe David Bentley Hart does as a theologian is like he completely embraces the methodology of the of the ancient um, classical theism of the ancient yeah of the ancient Christian Neoplatonic tradition. And so he uses those methods, but then he corrects its errors hmm. on its own terms, hmm. on its own terms. So it's like, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't try to like, he doesn't try to use like some like, you know, philosophical advancements, <laughs> you know, of modernity. He's like within operating within the classical system, he shows where the classical system got some things wrong and he points toward the parts of this classical system that didn't get it wrong you know the parts of the patristic tradition that actually did see um universalism as a necessary part of the of the picture yeah so um yeah um yeah that that book that all shall be saved i i am sort of inclined to agree with you that that there's there's not much left to be added in terms of improving that case um for universalism, and and the reason I say that is, I I think that the most the the two most powerful philosophical intuitions which incline me toward universalism, which is not by the way a position which I claim to know with certainty, it's just right. a position which um, I'm inclined to you know primarily from philosophical argumentation, but also from internal moral conviction. Um, uh, the first is 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 this idea that. Um, that you know, humans are 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 always uh, striving, uh, epectatically, as Gregory of Nyssa might have put it, in a in a manner characterized by epectasy, or these sort of upward spirals of, of striving, toward the good, and that you know, if you understand evil, as, the absence of the good, a, right. you know, a privation, a poverty, uh, a, a privatio boni, or what have you, then it makes sense that even in our fumblings or our failings, we're actually still reaching for some good, which, you know, especially in classical, in terms of classical theism is God. And so, you know, the idea that God is the good and that evil is a privatio boni sort of necessitates this, this understanding of, of all human striving where it is intrinsically aimed toward God and failure is caused by ignorance. So, you know, I, I, so there's on, on the one hand there's the idea the way that i'd like to put it is if the good is objectively good that means it's good for reasons of which one is either ignorant or cognizant and right. if the reasons why the good is good are you know uh what uh, we, we we claim they are uh, then cognizance of those reasons should result in one doing the good right. and it follows you know by deduction that failure to do the good is is due to ignorance and then there's the limits of human agency, which so you have you have the nature of the good on the one hand, and you have right. and you have the limits of human agency on the other. Mm -hmm. And Hart argues for that in a certain way, and I have it another way. I, right. I argue for each of these two ideas in different ways than he is, but if you zoom out, it's clear that we're leveraging the same two ideas. And um, and but but then but there's a lot in that book that I would never have been able to um, uh, come up with on my own. Um, it's, right. it's very, it's a very good argumentation. It's a very, very good book. Yeah, it is a very good book. It is a very good book, but ultimately like to me, it's like, it's like, 
and this is this is the weird thing for me is like ultimately like um i am i'm actually maybe because of the psychedelic experiences but for me like the the necessity of the restoration of all things being the only coherent story that you can tell like that to me is 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 a deeper reason it's a deeper reason um and and the reason that's a deeper reason is like first of all i mean you can't argue you you can actually make it you can make an argument argument for it rationally um um but the other thing is is like it's 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 a very deep moral intuition at the same time and it also is like i think it I think it does. I, I think it. I think it does, in fact, reflect like um, the, uh, the 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 directional trend of reality. Let's put it that way. Right, and 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 there is a way in which I'm not going to say it changes the gospels or gives us a quote unquote a different gospel, um, as perhaps uh, certain evangelicals uh, would, would would like to say but but you know when you read george mcdonald's books like the light of the gospel or something like that and you read his descriptions of of, of um uh, judas's reconciliation with jesus and understand how on some level the story and the figure of jesus demands something like this if jesus if jesus is truly ultimate the son of god where god is understood as love and jesus is the ultimate moral example this is what God himself would do if he were in human form. This is love incarnate. What does it do? And, you know, in some level, some of this is left open to the human imagination. And George MacDonald has, has an amazing oh, description. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I love MacDonald. And I would say, you know, I have this odd thought this morning um, as I was making my coffee. I often have odd thoughts in the morning while I'm making my coffee. And it's like, I was actually thinking about like, like, I was thinking about like, okay, so why is it why is it that the fallen like the fallen angels are cast down right why are they why was it that they're cast down um and so heaven is an eternal realm right and um so no change can happen in the eternal realm so the greatest mercy that you could show to a fallen angel is to cast them down from heaven because if they're cast down from heaven into the if they're cast down from heaven um in closer to 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 within the realm of time and change then there is a chance for there is a chance for them to be changed um and like i think that's like that's one of the i mean there's always been this sense like even like even in even an older Jewish tradition, there's always been this sense that like the what 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 humanity is here to do is, is to help in the process of repairing the world and mending the and, and mending that brokenness. Yeah, and that if that's tikkun olam, something like that. Uh, olam haba, oh, olam oh. haba. Yeah, the repair the of the olam world. Olam haba is like the age to come, and the mending the world is like. I thought it was anyway. You, you know, you probably know better than I do. Oh yeah, think. you're right. You're right. No, it's tikkun olam. Yeah, yeah. Olam haba is the age to come, and tikkun, tikkun olam is, is is the repair of the world. You have it but right. It's very interesting that you bring up this idea of sort of God 
punishing the angels with temporality, but the temporality actually being in, in some way perhaps an ultimate means of their redemption. Yeah, because right. it's the same idea or the, the obverse of it, which which Thomas will leverage in their arguments for why no one can be saved post-mortem. It's because right. after death, like well, that's spirits... that's it's familiarity with that Thomas argument is what made me right. have make the move to right. Revert. And, and, and the, um, the, the truth of the matter is that one always sees ways in which God can save us from ourselves. And if he's good, will he not avail himself of them? It's, it's an open question. But it's so right, many people right. have decided preemptively that the answer is, nope, you can't. Why? Because after death comes the judgment. It's like, yeah. that means that there's no hope of, universe, of, 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 of salvation postmortem. I've never even seen how that logically follows. But right. Well, also, um, it's like, it's also like, it's, it's, it... It's also like it's because of the curse of individualism too, though, because it's like it, 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 it's a failure to understand like what a person really is, because it's the more you have a sense of a person as just like this atomized individual, like self-contained thing, the easier it for is for you to accept a view like that. If you start to understand a person as something that as a as a fundamentally re relational creature always that is defined not just as an atomized individual but in all of the various relations that a human has to other humans and to and to lower parts of the creation and to, to and to the higher parts of the creation like as like the, the strands of relationship that tie it together to the rest of the hierarchy, when you start to think of a person in that way, then it becomes much easier to understand why universal salvation is actually the more logical end result because, because those strands are interwoven and that's web, that web is connected. And um, I would actually, I would actually find it easier to believe that there is, I would actually find it easier to believe that there is a possible case of universal damnation than to believe that God elects some for salvation and some for damnation. Like that actually, like to me, it's like I can, I can see an argument being made for that because, because love cannot be coerced. And and if and if God wants to have a universe where love is a possibility, then there has to be a degree of freedom. But we could all we could collectively fail to live into that eternal peace of God that is resting in God's love that He intends for us. We could collectively fail to do that. In toto, that 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 to me seems to be a possible outcome logically. I don't think it is. I don't think it is because I don't think, I think, I think that's what prop, what providence really is rather than mapping out like a specific te teleology that dictates everything that happens in space time. What it actually is, is a constraint that makes sure that inexorably God will draw everything to himself. And that is the final story. So I believe that God constrains that from being an outcome and it is only by the grace of God that that is not a possible outcome. You know, so, there's there's something um, interesting um, that that occurs to me in, in the context of David Bentley Hart's argument and, and your 
your experiences and, and intuitions and arguments in, in connection with the idea that the sort of um, the self identity of a person, you know, cannot be understood, uh, 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 divorced from the relationships, because in truth, that self identity is composed of those very relationships and that yourself is something given to you. And, and, and as it were, you know, mirror like reflections that that other people hold up to you when you interact with them. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a identity which emerges only in, in relationship, you know, with other people. And, and so the idea that some might be saved, but others damned is, is in some ways analogous to entering heaven with, with your arm or your leg or, you know, a piece of your heart, you know, maimed and right. torn away, which right. of course recalls the saying of Jesus is better. Right. Right. Better to, right. to pluck out your eye and throw it into Gehenna than go there right. in, in one piece. But the question is, is like, how, how are we to interpret this? You know, it, it is, is that perhaps more a statement about self-control and saying that you need to mortify certain sinful urges in yourself? Or is it really a way of saying that actually God is prepared to, to take only some of us into the kingdom uh, maimed and, and without uh, the, the relationships which are essential to ourselves. Um, you know, it's kind of, I think that the, the way to approach these questions is almost like in a spirit of rabbinic imaginary dialogue with Jesus and ask, sure, is this the interpretation sure. that we were supposed to, sure. to take? Right. Yeah. 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 Well, the other thing is, is like, you know, it, like the other thing that's like, to me, it's like, I mean, it's like, I still take hell seriously. It's like, I don't not believe in hell. Right. Especially if your definition of hell is like, being separated from the, the the peace of God, resting in the divine love, guess what? We are all in hell. That's right. Or at least have been in hell. That's right. And may return to hell again. And that it is always only by Christ's action of descending into hell and offering us that hand that we are ever restored from it. So hell is very real. Indeed. And, and, and here's another sort of uh, question for the rabbi. When Jesus descended into hell, was it just to do a sort of uh, victory lap around the spirit right, too much yeah. forever That's, languish there? That is, in fact, the Calvinist but, version. It's like, yes, I won. <laughs> I'm ducking on you. <laughs> That's yeah. That's Calvinist Jesus. That's that's exactly what he's doing. He goes there to he goes there to 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 show the power and majesty. But here's the thing. It's like this is okay. This gets back to my Christian anarchism, which like so. I very early my Christian anarchism very early on saved me from ever falling into that particular error, because I understood that like no, the divine hierarchy is a hierarchy that is based on love and reconciliation where humility and not power and domination are the dominating principles. It's actually like a literal reversal of the, of, of what our systems of hierarchy are. And that Calvinist sort of theology is definitely based on, it's on the model of the prince. Like the prince is the, the, the prince is the model of God in that. It's like tied to these, like, there's, it's not an accident. It's not an accident that the modern theory of the state is being developed at the same time as this theology. Okay. They go yeah, hand yeah. in hand with one another. Like the, the sovereign monarch. Yeah, exactly. So it's like sovereign God, sovereignty. There's, that isn't, Jesus says, 
if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Mm. Let's just take him seriously at that mm. because Jesus does not act like a sovereign monarch. Indeed. His sovereign, his sovereignty is through his humility and self-sacrifice. That's what makes him sovereign. His right. perfect humility and self-sacrifice. And that's and he, what the he model forgives is. the Jews as they crucify him. He doesn't yes. say, Father, damned him yeah. immediately. They heard your perfect message, but they they refused it, and therefore they're they're reprobated. Right. Um, but you know, this this reminds me of a quotation from George MacDonald, where it's like because this idea of the sovereign monarch, it's like his power is complete itself completely lawless. Um, Maimonides called God a, a monarch who who rides in his carriage and and before he makes uh, the decision, he does not know which way he's going to turn right or left. This is like completely uh, law. This is law without law. It's like a kind of unconstrained, absolute power. Right. And um, George, right? McDonald's which says, exactly, and it's it's it's. There's kind of an there's an inversion of potency and act. Like in Aquinas, like God yeah, is yeah. God is pure act, right? Like it it. Which is why you get all this sort of like possible worlds theory and all this kind of thing. Correct. It's like we yeah. want God to be like the imaginative, like unlimited potential space of like the Renaissance artist, which isn't anything. That's not actually what God is. God is actually that which limits and constrains mm. and draws everything to rest in the perfect peace of his eternal love. Mm. So, yeah. Well, McDonald said that um, he said that mere lonely power has no power to create, but that love is the power of power. So if you worship only power, you're going to get a certain God. And it's like you worship him because primarily because you're afraid of what his exercise of that power could do to you. And you just want to stay on the right side of, uh, in, of this essentially arbitrary wielding of power. That, that follows no laws that we can discern or understand. It certainly has no connection with what we think of as morality or no necessary connection. You know, that's, that's view one or view two is that, um, you know, the, the, the whole operating force behind this power is love. What was that, that description you gave me of, of God where you said it was something like prime motion, but, but agopic, do you remember? Oh, I was talking about like, okay, so I was talking about how I was like trying to like defend like the the notion of divine impassibility, while like trying to understand how, um, how God can have like sort of a kind of emotiveness to him. And what I, I what I had suggested was that, um, that God is the God, God as God of, of the as the unmoved mover is not himself move, but is motion. Motion. Right. And that mo the nature of that motion is love. Like that's mm. what it is. It's like, yeah. it flows. It's, it's, it's this, it's this highest derivative or uh, yeah. It's the power of power. It's, it's the most basic yep. thing. The most basic. It is literally the thing thing. that creates. Yeah. It is the thing that creates it. It like that, like agopic love is the, power of creation and it is the it is the power that creates a universe and like if you look at like when we are actually in our own human activity properly inhabiting the sub-creative role that we've been given that's what that's that's what we're doing too we're, we're modeling that pattern we're we're where you like true true creation truly worthy creation happens through agopic love 
Nate, I, and I it hate... differs fundamentally from, from it differs fundamentally from like kind of egoic kind of creations. Oh yeah, for sure, because because that that kind of creation is entirely self directed, whereas the love is like self giving and outward flowing. But Nate, I hate to do this to you um, because I, I promised you the the ability to have a long interview, but I'm wondering if we can if, I'm wondering if we can wrap things up to your satisfaction within these last five minutes and kind yeah, of do we can. everything yeah. within a neat yeah. two hours. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Yeah. Like, I could talk all day. <laughs> well, in some ways, <laughs> so, the good thing is that we've gotten there. We, yeah. we we managed to set up that that kind of foundation of the personal, which in some ways is necessary somehow to the discussion of, so. of these kind of loftier, abstract right. things. But right. I guess I wanted to give you these last five minutes to kind of make make whatever final points and observations be they autobiographical or be they philosophical that that you want to that you want to make yeah i would just say so now that now that luke has now that luke has drawn it to my like i'm okay i'm not very i i don't like in my adult life i have very little interaction with like evangelical world so i had no idea who rob bell was so i will just say that rob bell is correct (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that the story is love wins. That's the story. Yeah, a lot of a lot of um, universalists shy away from that, and they say, "Well, you know, I don't really think it's as simple as love. I'm not that mushy-headed, you know. Um, I believe it's something more <laughs> abstract. Like the source of all things is also their their end, and so things begin in God, they end in God. Universal, rec- which is all true, you know. It's all but, true. But but at the same time, it kind of is as simple. As it is. is right um, yeah yeah oh yeah i mean honestly honestly i <laughs> there is more okay there is a more fundamental truth in the beatles song love is all you need than the entire westminster confession this is a hard <laughs> saying who can hear it <laughs> it's, 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 well the thing about it is that you know like luke and i talk about this all the time like some of the best christians that we know are, are Calvinists like like Luke yep. and I really admire John Piper yeah. Uh, yeah I like Douglas Wilson in some ways I was converted to Christianity by Douglas Wilson right um, um, but um, can I say uh, this in defense of Calvinism really quick yeah I will say this this is the one that to me this is the there is there are the seeds of a Calvinist universalism indeed they are the seeds of a Calvinist universalism and that and, and the seeds of a Calvinist universalism is just take sola gratia deadly seriously deadly seriously make that the center point of your theology and you can have a redeemed calvinism that tells the right story Hmm. yeah there is um uh, well you know i don't you you should never take me as an expert on any given theologian because because the truth is i don't read my my adhd (laughs) is too severe but um my understanding is that bart well, no. So the thing is, Bart seems to at least have been ambiguous on the question of, uh, you know, whether or not all are saved in the end, and, and maybe he in fact denied it. Um, but it seems like at least within Barthian theology, there is room for some understanding of unconditional election in Christ, that is in fact universalistic. And many people have have have, um, have argued that this is. Uh, in some ways, like sort of inescapable logical direction of certain reformed arguments. I mean, the who knows what to make of all that. And again, maybe we're we're up against a, a, a time constraint here, but 
Yeah. But yeah. I, I don't know. I thought of, I thought you might have something to say about say about the. Potential. Oh, I think I think I've 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 uh, I, I've 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 known some uh, reformed universalists like um, I. So I think that that the possibility. Um, I think the possibility exists within the framework. So this is where I would disagree with David Bentley Hart. Mm. I would say that, well, I would say that does, it does, okay. I would say in a general reform, well, first of all, like McDonald was a Presbyterian minister. So yes. there's that. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously it's possible because like- I didn't know that, but but yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing. Yeah, <laughs> McDonald was a Presbyterian minister. So yeah. somehow he, even though his training and formation was as a Presbyterian minister, somehow he came away as like one of the, as far as I'm concerned, he's like, to me, there's more beauty to what McDonald does. And it, I find it actually more powerful than what David Bentley Hart does. Yeah, I agree. Um, um, and like, because he understands that really it's the story that matters. Yeah. Um, that it's really the story because that's what, that's what really we care about. He has what Luke would call undivided vision. Right. He's just right. like being there in this, in this kind of story moment. Now, David um, Bentley Hart has those that capacity, and in fact, like his his hmm. new book, uh, um, which I've just started reading, Rolling in the Moonlight, is like very much like he's like leaning in. He's he's leaning into the writer side of him, yeah, more than the the systematic thinking side of him, and 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 it's beautiful, yeah. Um, and it really is a book that shows like a really deep understanding of like we seem to be in a moment where like the super sensible realm is kind of colliding with the material at an, an alarmingly rapid rate. Ooh, what do you, cause I notice in academia that, that, that the, um, the momentum is shifting from materialism toward panpsychism. Yeah. I noticed that. I noticed yeah. this too, that a lot of people, myself included, whose, whose identity was very centered upon atheism and, 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 and materialism have turned to God uh, maybe for the first time, or maybe, back to God, but in, 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 a, in a new way. And I'm wondering, is this, is this just something that I am, am I overgeneralizing just based on my own experience? Something no, happened. I think it's very, I think it's very real. And it's like, you know, the, 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 Pente the, the Pentecostal part of me, <laughs> you know, is like wants to, I mean, I would just say that like, to me, it's like pretty obvious, like the spirit is moving, like God is working. Like, you know, and um, this is, this is, uh, um, we, this is a moment where it does seem to me that very much like, like the spiritual world is, is starting to come back into closer contact with the material or with, well, it, it always was, but we're starting, we're regaining the ability to see it. We, we ourselves are, are yeah, we're, re we're gaining to... the ability to see it again. I would say, or to put it in Barfieldian terms, it's like, you're seeing the beginnings of the move toward the consciousness of final participation. Mm. Like it's happening. Mm -hmm. We're, we're coming out of withdrawal. Mm. I think that's pretty obvious. Like withdrawal is withdrawal is ending. Like it's, it, it's collapsed. It's collapsed upon itself. And, um, um, we're starting to see the spiritual world again. Well, I think that is a beautiful note to end on. Yeah. I think we should, I think that's the, that's the logical terminus of, of this, of this conversation. Um, uh, hopefully there will be more such yeah, conversations. I, I would love to talk to you again. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, um, uh, so whenever you want, you can, you can 
stop the recording and we'll okay. talk about what to do with um, this particular 